0: Uh the case of Snowbridge Advisor versus Silver Square, twenty two I'm going to start with Mr. Barton.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. May it please the Court, I'm Roger Barton. I'm the Managing Partner of Barton LLP. Uh, we are the attorneys for Snowbridge Securities and Snowbridge Advisors who are the plaintiff, appellants, and cross-appellees. I'm joined today by my colleague Randy Racy, as well as three of our summer interns who aspire to join our medical profession. Uh, This is a simple breach of contract case brought by Snowbridge Advisors and Snowbridge Securities to recover approximately 2.5 million euros owed by ESO Partners and its successor, Soho Square, pursuant to the terms of an agreement under which Snowbridge Securities has assignee of DCS Advisory acted as exclusive financial advisor and North American placement agent in connection with proposed private placement of funds managed by ESO and later by Soho Square. Snowbridge Securities was entitled to a monthly work fee of 30,000 euros and a minimum placement fee of 3 million euros, less what was already paid in the monthly fees. Paid at the first closing, regardless of whether or not Snowbridge itself raised any funds. Snowbridge has tried to collect this fee since December of 2020. No time prior to this lawsuit did ESO or its successor Soho Square-
2: Council, can I interrupt and have you describe for me the relationship between Snowbridge and um, DSC, is that what it's called?
1: DCS.
2: I may have gotten that wrong. What was the relationship between them?
1: Yes. When this agreement was first signed, Snowbridge Advisors- was not a registered broker-dealer.
2: So, so DCS was the only broker-dealer in this deal?
1: Correct. CCS was brought in as the broker-dealer, which, as I'm sure the Court knows, uh, was required to act in connection with the placement of securities. Snowbridge so, Advisors was not registered. So it them.
0: was necessary. It was
1: necessary at that time, correct.
0: But at that point, the client relationship, if I'm understanding it, was Snowbridge Advisor. DCS didn't independently have the client relationship until you brought them in as the broker. Dealer.
1: Exactly right. In, in the placement agent, this is called a placement agreement. Um, Snowbridge is a, what they call a placement agent, or a, because uh, uh, they're really a placement agent or third party marketer. Um, securities need to be sold through a registered broker dealer, as you just said. So Snowbridge Advisors at that time did not, was not itself, have its own broker-dealer, so they had a relationship with DCS called in the industry called the Hotelling Arrangement, where DCS would allow the registered representatives of Snowbridge to act under their umbrella. They were the ones doing the work. They were the ones engaging with the client. As, as the so what did referenced.
2: Snowbridge contribute to the deal? They just brought people together?
1: Snowbridge were the working entity of the deal, the Snowbridge had registered representatives, individuals, who were the ones that actually created, provided the services and worked with um, ASO to get them investor ready, organize the investor meetings. To so whom was all the, the fee due? The fee could only be accepted by a registered broker-dealer, and that's why DCS was needed.
3: But is, is, that, is it correct to say that the uh, governing document for these relationships was the agreement between ESO Capital Partners and DCS, as to which Snowbridge signed but was kind of ancillary um, in terms of its uh, its mention. It has the right to assign in it, uh, but it has a couple mentions. The primary rights and obligations are between DCS and ESO Capital Partners.
1: That's correct. Is that
3: right? And there was no other agreement that um, reflected this relationship. There is no other agreement,
1: but this agreement is very key, and Snowbridge Advisors – Was not quite ancillary. In fact, they were front and center.
3: Well, well, the the main obligations, rights and obligations stated in the agreement, are uh, between DCS. It's on DCS letterhead, of course, and ESO uh, capital.
1: Correct, with one major exception, which was it was contemplated when this agreement was signed that Snowbridge would either form its own um, broker-dealer or purchase a broker dealer and therefore be able to become a broker dealer. Did it dealer ever
2: itself. form its own broker dealer? Snowbridge? I'm, so, I'm sorry? Did it ever form its own broker yes, dealer?
1: Yes it did. And that's when Snowbridge when Snowbridge gave notice to ESO that the DCS fees would now be assigned to Snowbridge Securities. Snowbridge did, securities did, was
2: the did DCS agree and did they have to?
1: DCS agreed in the initial agreement that Toronto was just referring to that at some point along the way, their rights could be assigned over to a broker-dealer, either formed by Snowbridge or designated by
2: Snowbridge. So, so DCF didn't
3: object to the transfer? No,
1: they did not object. It was always contemplated that that was what would happen, and that's why the assignment. When well, you say it was
3: always contemplated, of course, you know, the governing document has language that it, reflects what it reflects. I and mean, The parties may have contemplated something else, but in interpreting the party's rights and obligations, we look to the language of the agreement, don't we? I agree. And if you look at the language
1: of the agreement, the assignment provision is very carefully worded. There's an assignment provision that allows Snowbridge.
3: So Snowbridge shall have the right to assign the rights and obligations under this agreement. Correct. Is that right? And your position is that that meant everyone's rights and obligations, not just its own? <laughs> it
1: meant DCS's rights because it refers, as you as you go on to the next Phrase there, to, one, a fully licensed broker-dealer affiliated with Snowbridge, and Snowbridge's discretion.
3: But typically in the law, you have the right to assign your own rights and obligations, not the rights of other parties. Could it, could, for example, it have assigned the rights of ESO capital as well?
1: No, it couldn't. And, um, and why is that? Because it, those rights were not rights that would be assigned to a broker-dealer.
3: But it I doesn't think. say that, does it? It just says it's the a, rights and obligations.
1: Correct. But the only logical reading of that, Your Honor, is that Snowbridge had contemplated, as we had said, to form its own broker-dealer or be affiliated with
3: But Why is it logical to presume that, uh, contrary to standard law, uh, that uh, it would be able to assign rights and obligations that weren't its own?
1: Because of exactly what this language is. This language is the assignment. The execution of it came later. But this language allows Snowbridge, in its own discretion, without asking for permission to assign the rights to a broker-dealer. What, under this agreement, was being handled by a broker-dealer? DCS. DCS, as a broker-dealer, received the fees. Well,
3: why couldn't it have assigned its own rights um, and not DCS's rights?
1: It could, but to what point? I mean, the, the point, the way the economics of the, of the contract work, DCS is the only one allowed to accept fees for the placement of these securities, and then it pays money to Snowbridge. Snowbridge wanted to become the recipient of those fees in its entirety, which is what this language addresses.
0: AM I reading it right that, that really this provision is the only provision that gives Snowbridge any rights or obligations under the contract? So if we read the contract the way that your counterpart would like us to read it, there's this weird, gratuitous reference to Snowbridge assigning its rights and obligations, but it has no rights and obligations. It would. It would be a. I would tend to agree with that
1: in almost whole. Um, Snowbridge Advisors, of course, is is on here as the party that needs to execute that, so that's the right that it has. Right, Right, but there's no.
0: That's the right that it has, but there's nothing else. In other words, absent that paragraph, is there anything else about this contract that? leads us to think it makes sense for Snowbridge advisors to even be a party to the contract.
1: Correct.
3: That's correct. Well, it, it makes certain representations and warranties, doesn't it? Well, they which do. Are, which I mean, would that, be and, actionable if and, they were and, false. And, and
1: That's right. But the main import of this contract is to place securities and earn a fee. I mean, that's it boiled down to the, to the minimum. Um, Snowbridge was not entitled to get a fee unless it was a registered broker dealer. DCS is the only one entitled to get a fee. So... Your Honor is right. That's the point for having Snowbridge having the right to assign DCS's rights, the rights, to its own broker-dealer.
3: But why, since the rights, you say, encompasses its own rights as well as DCS's rights, why couldn't it have assigned also ESO capital rights? It, You're it, saying that it wouldn't have made economic sense it, or didn't kind It, of it makes no logical track. sense
1: because the rights of Snowbridge and its side of the ledger, if you will, in placing securities on behalf of ESO, um, there would be no reason for Snowbridge but to cross my, over But deals. my problem
3: is that is because the language, you're, you're saying it's not just its own rights and that we should just look and try to understand the economics of the deal to read against the common law principle that um, it, you would generally have the right to assign your own rights, that um, it's kind of open-ended. Well, it may not be as artfully
1: drafted, but if we're looking at what's logical, um, it's only logical that it would be DCS's rights, okay. and con- the, I agree with the common law. You can't assign someone else's rights, but the point we are taking, I think, is clear. This contract, when signed, already provided the assignment. We just didn't know who it was going to be assigned to, to but we knew it would either be a broker-dealer affiliated with Snowbridge or someone else that Snowbridge would designate.
3: Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand. You said this contract, when, when signed, already yeah. provided the assignment?
1: That's correct. I think the assignment provision in the engagement letter, the way that this is written, that's no bridge and its absolute right, can make the assignment, that then in there is the assignment. The execution of it, the party to be designated, comes later. Is that and,
0: the assignment or is it the agreement by DCS to consent to the assignment? I
1: mean, uh, I, I guess we could say it's, it's their consent their understanding that their rights would be assigned. It's the execution of that assignment later. And and there's, and there's if you look at, distinguish this language from the other assignment language. The other assignment language requires consent of the parties, prior written consent. There's no prior written consent here. Everybody agrees the But it also, says, it also
2: says shall have, have the, the right to. So we can't ask their position on this. But I have a question about the district court's opinion, who found um, that the agreement unambiguously barred Snowbridge from unilaterally assigning DCS advisories' obligations under the agreement. Tell me where the district court got that wrong.
1: I don't think, for the reason we're debating it right now, I don't think it's unambiguous. From our standpoint, it's clear that the assignment provision was, the assignment was given in this agreement. But even if it's unclear, then it's vague. And if it's vague, that does not support a motion to dismiss
0: Because that would then take us to extrinsic evidence. We might look at the fact that DCS didn't object when the payments started going for several months to Snowbridge. Correct. Which is exactly right,
1: Your Honor. We need to look at the conduct of the parties following the assignment, ESO paid Snowbridge. ESO never objected.
0: And I take it, DCS didn't seek to intervene in this action and say, no, we're the real party in interest. Correct.
1: Everybody understood this the way that we're presenting it to the court. Um, Unfortunately... The court below did, didn't agree with that, but even if, and I don't concede that it's vague or ambiguous, but even if it was, that, that doesn't support a motion to dismiss. So the district
2: court read the agreement incorrectly,
1: is it's what it's, you It's saying. a tortured reading. I don't see any logical way to read it the way the district court read it. I
0: think we're going to get to hear from you again. Thank you. In rebuttal, so we'll hear from, who's going first here?
4: It's more exciting for ESO Capital. Mr. Seid. Good morning. Good morning. May it please the Court, Mark Seidman, on behalf of Defendant Lee, ESO Capital Partners, UK LLP. I want to start, Judge Robinson, by addressing your question about assignable rights that Snowbridge had under the contract, because there were assignable rights. First, in the introductory paragraph of the agreement, Snowbridge is given the right at DCS's discretion to perform services under the contract. So that is a right. In addition, under Section 6 of the agreement, Snowbridge has a broad right to indemnification under the Indemnification Provision. Under Section 8 of the agreement, Snowbridge had an express right to publicity in connection with closing of the deal. And under Section 12 of the agreement, Snowbridge had a right to prevailing party attorney fees in any litigation a provision that they actually tried to assert in the district court below. So there were clearly assignable rights as well as obligations, which I could outline, that Snowbridge had uh, under the agreement.
0: So can I ask, a, there's a couple of course, questions that have sort of yeah. come to my mind during the argument. And one is you know, there is this common law principle that you can't assign someone else's rights or at least without their consent. I think you can see it on page 20 of your brief, if I'm remembering right, that A party can certainly agree to allow their rights and obligations to be assigned by a third party, and the issue in this case is whether that's happened. So am I right that this common law principle that you can't assign somebody else's rights or obligations without their consent is sort of a, it's a circular argument. It doesn't help us determine what's happened in this case with this text, because it's very possible that your client did agree, or not your client, I'm sorry, DCS did agree to allow its rights to be assigned. It's possible that it didn't, and we're we're looking at the language to try to figure that out.
4: Well, they had an opportunity, certainly, to plead in their complaint that DCS agreed in a separate document or to bring that evidence before judges. Well, they don't need out. a separate
0: document. In other words, if we conclude either that the document clearly contemplates reading what your counterpart is advocating or that it's ambiguous and a court ultimately concludes that it has the meaning that they're advocating, then the, the fact that there's this common law principle is not an obstacle to enforcing that contract, because they've agreed. You're not arguing that that common law principle overrides the agreement
4: Right. I think our argument is that Section 13, the assignment provision, is clear on its face. Right. That the word assign has a clear definition. We've cited nine different cases that say what it means. Judge Rakoff found it. And they don't necessarily disagree. They seem to be saying that they had an option in Section 13, an option to assign the rights. And sure. it doesn't make sense. Uh, Judge Robinson, let me suggest it doesn't make sense because it would lead to absurd results, and I'll give you an example.
0: Okay.
4: Let's assume under the contract they didn't exercise, they didn't serve this assignment notice of assignment in August of 2019. Rather, Snowbridge sat on this supposed right and instead served that notice in December of 2020. That means during the duration of the contract, DCS performed, it had a right to payment,
0: and he thought it paid for and, the time. And what the,
4: the allegation is that at some point my clients stopped paying and that owes $2 million plus under the contract. And so what Snowbridge's position is, is that they could walk in in December 2020 when all the performances are over, serve this assignment notice and say, we now have all the rights under the obligation and you don't pay DCS, you pay us the $2 million. That's an absurd result that at the end of the transaction, they could come in, serve a piece of paper, and all of a sudden they're the rightful owner of the right to payment. But that's the logical consequence of what they're arguing.
0: So I'm curious, am I understanding the record right? And I understand ultimately we've got to be bound by the document. But uh, when they did say, okay, we're we're electing Snowbridge Securities as our new broker-dealer for the purpose of this arrangement and and the placement that we're doing, am I right that at that point your client – started paying Snowbridge uh, securities. And and DCS didn't object. And there was a period of time when everybody understood that that assignment had happened. It wasn't objected to. And it's only this litigation that's brought out this new position that that that's not actually what the contract meant.
4: Well, so I would uh, here's what I would contest about that. First, it's an attempt by Snowbridge to use parole evidence to create an ambiguity, which we can't do. But if we get past that, The issue is whether whether my client understood that this notice that they gave was an assignment. My client was under the impression that Snowbridge had a valid assignment. In other words, that DCS had given them that piece of paper that said, we hereby assign our claim. That didn't happen, and after two months, the payment stopped. But I don't think, so that's, that's part of it. There was so
0: just based on Snowbridge Security's say-so, your client assumed that DCS had conveyed its rights without checking with DCS?
4: Again, we don't, we don't have facts in the record. I don't have that information for your, your parole evidence. But we're also in the middle of a transaction where Snowbridge was doing some of the work under section, under that right to work in the introductory paragraph. My client couldn't just walk away from the deal at the crucial time, it had to move forward. But after two months, it stopped and the deal stopped. And then in terms of objecting from a litigation perspective, my my role in challenging the assignment, one of them, is to avoid inconsistent judgments. They left DC out, DCS out of the lawsuit. And so before we can move forward, I need to see who is the valid owner uh, of this claim. Right. And so there we go back, we go back to the contract. And I'd refer the, the panel, if I could, to um, a decision Judge Pooler wrote, and it's cited by Snowbridge in their papers, and this is the, um, it was last year, Judge Pooler, the JN Contemporary Art versus Philip Auctioneers case. You may remember it was force majeure related to COVID and art auctions. And one of the things that you wrote about in that decision, if the parties meant to include, there it was a trade, if the parties meant to include a trade, they could have drafted their agreement to say so. And that was a strong principle in that decision. And it's the same situation here. If Snowbridge meant to have this role that Mr. Barton so eloquently <laughs> talked about, or telling in the rest, the agreement could have given a whiff, a hint of it. But that's not the case.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I guess that's what we're
4: debating, right, is whether
0: sure. Section 13 states it plainly Is ambiguous as to whether it states it or doesn't, or or clearly doesn't state. I mean, that—that—that's what we have to look at the language. But on your reading, we have to make sense of this whole notion. One of the things I'm struggling with is Snowbridge has told us a story that makes total sense of the language of the agreement as it's there, right? I'm waiting for a story from you that makes sense of this whole notion that Snowbridge can sign the rights and obligations to another broker-dealer if that's not understood as a substitution for the existing broker.
4: So Snowbridge told a story about hoteling, and I agree. But that hoteling, there's nothing in the agreement. So they're telling a story which is all parole evidence. If you look in their brief, they talk repeatedly about the purpose of the contract. Never once is there a sight to any language within the four corners of the document.
0: Right, I'm just trying to understand, I'm, I'm looking at the four corners of the document and I'm trying to, one of the things you do is you try to make sense of the language that's there. And so, tell me a parole evidence story that makes sense of the contract as it's written. It doesn't have this assignment, uh, and particularly an assignment authorizing Snowbridge to, without consent, uh, assign rights and obligations limited to a fully licensed broker-dealer affiliated with Snowbridge or another broker-dealer with the written consent of the company, not to be unreasonably, developed. what does that even mean sure, other I, than in the story that I, we've heard?
4: I think the story I would tell you is we're looking at a contract where we have an assignment provision towards the end, which is a basic assignment clause that gives a party the right to assign its own clause. Should my, would it have been better for me if my client on day one had said, no, let's stop? This isn't this isn't what's supposed to happen. Perhaps, right? Then I would have a story to tell you, but it doesn't change the fact that that's all parole evidence. And I think Judge Robinson, if I, if I might, if we had been here and Snowbridge was saying we assigned our own rights to Snowbridge Securities under the contract, right? I think no one would be challenging challenging that and say, of course you did, because that's the clear, unambiguous meaning of the assignment provision in Section 13.
0: But wouldn't that be ambiguous? I mean, it is ambiguous, right? The use of the term the has generated a lot of questions here. If that had said <laughs> its rights, and this is sort of going to the if that's what they meant, they would have said it. If, if, if they had meant that they could assign its rights, that would have been a very easy thing to draft, and it would have been a one-word one change.
4: It, it could have been, but the, the problem with that, from Snowbridge's perspective, the problem with that argument is it doesn't change the well-understood definition of the meaning assigned. Right, And so there is law, certainly, in New York in terms of the canons of contract construction. And this was the opening point I was going to make, that when interpreting a contract, words should be given the meaning ordinarily ascribed to them. And that's that's legion. It's black letter law in contract construction. Right. So assign, we've all agreed, can only mean one thing can it. Assign its rights. So the omission of the word its doesn't render Section 13 ambiguous because the word assign necessarily means assign its own rights.
0: Well, but that's assuming that the word assignment was well, well chosen in the, in the article, uh, the, was was not. It's, it's possible that the word the was artfully chosen and, and the term assignment was more clunky. I mean, is, doesn't that make it ambiguous? One way or the other, we're going to have to take a word and we're going to have to read it in some way other than its sort of plain language. Doesn't, isn't that sort of the definition I, of ambiguous? I,
4: I don't think so, and for this reason. One, again we go back to assign having a clear definite meaning to the um, the uh, interpretation offered by Snowbridge would lead to absurd results. It's like Judge Cardi mentioned earlier, uh, why wouldn't they, under the interpretation, have the right to assign ESO's interest? Why wouldn't they have the right to assign the fund's interest? That's the logical extension of their argument. And again, it's the counties of contract construction, we avoid interpretations that would lead to absurd results.
0: Mr. don't have any further. I appreciate your argument. Thank you very much. Thank you again. From Mr.
4: Burke. I think Mr. New is next. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. New. I'm, you're right.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Your Honor. This, uh, <laughs> not trying to cut you out of the conversation. I apologize.
5: That's all right, Your Honor. I'm I'm happy to answer any questions the Court has. Um, Let me just start say good morning. Uh, May it please the Court.
2: Well, you have the cross appeal, don't you?
5: Yes, Your Honor, I do.
2: And uh, you agree that if we affirm the judge below, your cross appeal is moot?
5: Yes, that's correct, Your Honor.
2: So you're proceeding on the assumption that we may not affirm the District Court proceed and tell us about successful liability.
5: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and while, while I'm proceeding on the assumption that you may not, I believe that you should affirm the District Court as well on the uh, ruling as to whether or not Snowbird Securities has standing. Um, in the in the event, however, that you disagree, uh, for whatever reason, um, we think that you should nevertheless reverse the District Court uh, with regard to the issue as to uh, whether or not uh, Snowbird Securities uh, Establish successor liability against Soho Square. Um, the district court uh, had a very perfunctory analysis of the choice of law issue. Uh, in fact, it really didn't entertain a choice of law analysis. What it simply said was, "There's a contract. The contract says New York law applies, and therefore um, we're only going to apply New York law." Uh, but that's that's not what the case law says. It's not what logic would dictate because the question before the court in the first instance was whether or not SOHO squared, which is, everybody agrees, not a party to the original agreement, whether they could be held liable on a successor liability theory for the alleged breach by ESO partners. And that question uh, is a question that is collateral to the contract, as then Judge Alito noted in the Berg decision um, as this court similarly uh, uh, opined in the Blue Whale and cow decisions, where the question there was slightly different, it was whether or not a party could be found to be an alter ego or they could pierce the corporate veil in a breach of contract case. And this court said, <clears throat> we don't look at the contract for that determination. The successor liability determination is based upon the interest analysis under New York law.
0: Would you recommend, if we agree with you on that, and and if we get to this issue, would your recommendation be that we then remand to the District Court to do a New York interests analysis, or do you think that we can go further and conduct that ourselves and and, um, make the determination?
5: Your Honor, I believe that this Court can make that determination. It is a question of law. Um, The record is complete based on the allegations in the complaint alone, as well as the applicable law. We believe that it's clear that uh, English law should apply.
3: Is there, is there a English- conflict? Can I interrupt for a second? Is there yes. a conflict um, between English and New York law and successorship?
5: Yes, Your Honor. Um, we established in the district court, and it really wasn't contested at all by the plaintiffs, that under English law, there would be no successor liability at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no exceptions to the general rule that a company that acquires the assets of another company but doesn't merge with it is not a liable as a successor unless they expressly assume that or there's a novation of the contract. Uh, there, there's been no, no dispute on that uh, either below or here as, as far as I'm aware. So that would be a dispositive issue if this court were to agree with us that English law should apply, then under English law there is no successor liability and Soho Square should simply be dismissed from the case.
0: It's interesting on this question of whether English law applies, and you're relying, if I'm remembering correctly, on this sort of uh, notion that successor liability falls into that category where the place of incorporation has the greater interest. And there are New York federal district court decisions that seem to fairly uniformly support that, the New York State Court trial court decisions uniformly reject that and take a much more flexible view. And I'm not seeing anything from the New York Court of Appeals on the subject. Am I, am I wrong that the New York Court of Appeals hasn't addressed the success the question of whether the success or liability question falls within the internal affairs doctrine? Uh,
5: I don't believe that they have. Um, no, Your Honor. I don't believe there is a Court of Appeals decision on the question of whether success or liability falls uh, With the internal affairs doctrine, but I, I believe actually that the um, the only cases that the defense has cited um, for a uh, contrary application of New York choice of law rules are those two New York Supreme Court cases which are distinguishable. Um, they have not cited to any case, in the first instance, where a court has uh, applied the language uh, and choice of law in a contract to a non-party to determine the choice of law issue. Um, They haven't contested that. And then with regard to the other cases, there are um, numerous cases uh, in the district court uh, here. Um, Again, by analogy, Blue Whale and Cal, this court found as well where the interest analysis applies and the place of incorporation um, and where it's uh, primarily operating is controlling. And, um, two of the district court cases, for example, that I think, uh, are particularly, uh, helpful here, uh, are the Planet Planet Payment Inc. case. Right. Uh, and, and the, and, and the, uh, Soviet Pan Am case, where the district courts, uh, said that based upon the company's place of incorporation, based upon, uh, its, its location, that the, the choice of law, the interest analysis of New York law would point to the, the state of a corporation.
0: But I read the New York Supreme Court cases as saying the opposite, right? Saying that successor liability really is a question that relates to the interests of third parties vis a vis this entity, not internal affairs of the entity. And for that reason, uh, while place of incorporation and primary principal place of business may be factors in the interest analysis. Uh, there's no presumption that we go straight to place of incorporation or primary place of business. Why isn't that right?
5: Well, well, Your Honor, I I think that it is right to say that it is not a hard and fast rule in those cases that place of incorporation controls. But even in those two cases, and it's two cases, again, versus a plethora of cases that we've cited on the other side, even in those two cases what the Court said was um, the only connection – between the company and the place of incorporation is the place of a, is the fact that they were incorporated there. Um, there are no other factors. There are no other connections. So if you did an interest analysis, uh, which you would have to do in those cases, we did an interest analysis. The interests of New York seem to be
0: right. That's the Cayman Islands.
5: Correct. Right. Case. correct right. Your Honor. Here, if you look at the issue before the court, it's is one company that is incorporated, organized, and located in England. The successor of another company that was organized and is located in England. And under that analysis, whether you want to call it internal affairs or just straight up New York state interest analysis, the interests of England would clearly be, you know, prevailing as opposed to the interests of New York where Soho Square not only is not present in New York, but there's no indication in the record that they have any contact with New York, sufficient to establish jurisdiction. Um, and, and so this is not the case where there's some sort of technical reason why English law applies. These are English companies, and the question of whether one company in England organized under the laws of England should be held liable for the uh, conduct of a third party is something in which English law should prevail. England has a bigger interest in that because... You know, as one of the cases says, and and then I'll wrap up, as one of the cases says very clearly, the question of whether or not a company um, should be held liable uh, as a successor is really a question of public law, not a question of private law, um, because it's not something that's determined by the contract. Um, And when a company is organized in a particular jurisdiction, that jurisdiction has primacy. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Appreciate it. No, Mr. Pardon. Sorry about that.
1: Thank you. That is confusing. Um, I just wanted to circle back on a question that was asked by the court and pointed out um, by Mr. Sidon, the abs- potential for an absurd result if you construe the language of the assignment. Um, why of the assignment references, as we've said before, that Snowbridge could assign its rights to another broker-dealer? That in and of itself indicates it's not assigning ESO's rights because ESO was not a broker dealer. You,
3: you just used the word assign its rights.
1: We the rights. Sorry, um, that the assignment, the way the mechanics of the assignment was to, was to work, expanded Snowbridge's authority by giving it the right to assign to another broker dealer. It would not. ESO didn't have any broker dealer function, so. It, we couldn't assign ESO's rights. Yeah, but what, reach
3: what's to what's troubling to me is though that you're expanding on the actual language of the agreement. All of these things could have been written out and could have been said if that's what was intended. But okay. that, that isn't the language that the parties all agreed to.
1: Well, it, there are three different elements of the assignment. There's what Snowbridge was allowed to assign in the phrase we've been talking to, the rights to a broker-dealer of its own affiliation. Then there is, could assign to...
3: It doesn't say the rights of a broker-dealer, does it? It just says the rights and obligations under this agreement.
1: Correct. Yeah. But if you're tying it back to broker-dealer, it has to be DCS's rights. right? Um, if it's going to be another broker-dealer, it needs to get permission. And then the other parties, ESO, the fund, uh, DCS, cannot assign without prior written consent. So there's there's a waterfall, if you will, of, of what's required, and it's understood by virtue of our reading and I think logic that the assignment is already made in this agreement. That's a point that I'd like to just circle back on. The um, getting back to Soho Square and, and as a successor, I just wanted to alert the court, there's authority that none of us cited, and I apologize for that, um, but it's a Judge Bat's case in Ray Kingate management Litigation 2016 Westlaw 533-9538 and affirmed by the Second Circuit 746 Federal Appendix 40 in 2018, where she says, quote, the Second Circuit has made clear that the application of the Internal Affairs Doctrine is not automatic. Instead, New York courts may take a more flexible approach applying the interest analysis, which applies the law of the jurisdiction with the most significant interest in or relationship to the dispute. Here, understood that the two, the ESO and Soho, are UK companies. However, this entire transaction was negotiated in New York. The contract is governed by New York law. The meetings took place in New York. Our clients were the exclusive placement agent for North America.
0: But is the question of successor liability broader than this particular contract, or, or is successor liability evaluated with respect to each particular claim against a predecessor company?
1: I think it's it's more claim related than it is otherwise, because that, for the same reason you don't look at the internal affairs doctrine. Uh, you look to see what were the contacts that were made in connection with this transaction so, and the parties so involved.
0: you could have a universe where SOHO is considered a successor for the purposes of this transaction, but for the purposes of some other transaction it's not?
1: If we're looking at the interest analysis under these facts, yes.
0: Okay.
1: I don't think it binds SOHO necessarily if, for their transactions in England.
0: And do you – I haven't heard you challenge that English law would come out different on the question of – you're not fighting? We're not fighting right now. Okay.
1: There are no further questions. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it, everybody. Um,
3: Thank you. We'll reserve decision and uh, move on to the next case.